Welcome to Designing the Future. My name is Michael Alba. I'm the senior editor here at engineering.com. And today we're gonna to talk all about autonomous vehicles. Joining us today is Nand Kocher, Vice President of Automotive and Transportation at Siemens Digital Industries Software. Nand has extensive experience in the automotive industry, having served for many years as a chief engineer at Ford before joining Siemens earlier this year. Nand, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, let me just dive into the top question I think everybody has about autonomous vehicles, and that is, when are they going to get here, really? Can you tell us a little bit about the state of autonomous vehicle development today and when we might achieve the fully autonomous level five autonomous vehicle that everybody wants to see happen? Sure. As you know, the industry has been working on autonomous development, uh, advanced driver assist systems for um, more than a decade. And um, there's SAE levels of autonomous, which go from level zero to level five. Um, so some level of autonomy is already here. Um, our um, drivers are experiencing that, consumers are experiencing that, and to be honest, they are, uh, you could say, loving it. I, as a user, am loving some aspects of it. And those are what we call SAE level one and SAE level two, that those features and functions are enabling drivers to perform some of the functions like autonomous emergency braking or adaptive cruise control uh, in those vehicles. So that's already exists out there, the level of autonomy. Of course, you continue to build the scale up. The SA level three is where now you're doing the next level of autonomy, where in addition to these features, like I mentioned, uh, you're trying to also map in the entire mapping function and the environment and those kind of things. So you go into the next generation of uh, autonomy in there. And you'll see some of the companies who are in advanced stages are already getting products out there, uh, so to say, in the SA level three. What's happening, interestingly, we always think of uh, automotive industry as cars, as, as the consumers, but this autonomy is going uh, on all transportation systems. Um, so the reason I say that is if you look at trucking industry and they're adapting autonomous uh, driving as well, and uh, some of the trucking industry is getting that into a SA level four, uh, that is you can drive in a conditions, uh, in multiple other conditions than the level two and three. Um, so recently, as you know, Waymo announced they are doing ESA level four testing for the trucks in Texas. Uh, so that's an example of that. Having said that to your other question, everybody's waiting for when is the ultimate level of autonomy, which is level five, there's no steering wheel in the car, there's no brakes. Uh, that is the extreme case of autonomy. And in my mind, as a user, as an engineer, that's gonna be a far away and without putting any timeline on it, because that is looking at vehicle's ability to work in all conditions under all environments. And that is the extreme case. As you know, in adapting autonomy, uh, safety is absolutely critical. And that's why the companies are working through all these different stages of that. Now, when we talk about level four, uh, you are putting some kind of conditional stuff, whether that could be a remote monitoring um, or it could be other scenarios of some level of geofencing. And that's why people are able to get into that and adapt to that before jumping to the SA level five. 
So you say level five is far away, and I don't blame you for not giving it a date because I can't see the future either. Uh, but Tesla CEO Elon Musk seems to think it's coming a lot sooner than that. Earlier this year at a conference on artificial intelligence, he made a claim, and I quote now, he said, there are no fundamental challenges remaining for level five autonomy. Now, based on your previous answer, I don't think you would agree with that statement. So let me ask, what fundamental challenges are remaining for level five autonomy? Yeah, there, there's so many different ways of looking at this whole scenario. Um, you can divide that into a technical aspects of it. So when you uh, add artificial intelligence and the self-learning of the machines on top of the today's autonomous vehicles, then you can adapt that it is coming sooner than far away. But at the same time, what I look at is the adoption of these autonomous vehicles for a normal consumer. Uh, for that, safety and just a culture and a mind shift of a new technology coming in and everyday users adapting to that, uh, that's a big factor. Uh, what are the policies? Uh, what are the, what do we even call the testing standards for autonomous vehicles? As you know, for crash safety, it took decades uh, for all countries to have their uh, legal organizations, uh, for example, in the US, NHTSA, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, to come up with the standards. What is a passive safety requirements and what testing standards are? Some of those kind of things don't even exist, to best of my knowledge, uh, in the industry. So obviously, if you want a pure technical thing, then you would say, yeah, technology is there. As we talk about, we've come in far uh, over the last few years. And then you add on some of the future technologies of whatever the today's constraints are. So technically, you could be there sooner than far. But the full adoption of that, taking into account other aspects I, I touched on, is what decides the timeline. So do you think it's, there's a reasonable chance that we could have a fully level five autonomous vehicle before the end of the decade, regardless of whether anybody feels comfortable enough driving it? End of the decade um, is, I would say, for the markets we are in, we are used to here, um, still to me is uh, sounds soon, but in some other parts of the world where you have different sets of policies and different priorities, uh, as you'll know, when you get into the details of autonomous vehicle is not just the vehicle on its own, you always have to talk in context of the ecosystem, which includes the city infrastructure and um, how the rest of the technologies are coming with it. So at some other places, uh, they might allow some of these and uh, might come out sooner in the end of the decade type of thing. And now you've suggested that autonomous vehicles will come to the trucking industry before it comes to personal use. Uh, why is that? And do you think there will be much of a lag between those two use cases? Yeah, even in the trucking, I mean, again, it's the business case, um, as well as uh, the overall equation. And um, you could say somehow it's still in the environment of a, uh, a, a it's on a fencing type of thing when you go on a trucking. It's going on a very specific route, so the routes are defined, so it's not anyone decides um, to take a Thomas vehicle off-road where there's not even a lane marking. So I think there's a lot of business benefits as well as the use case scenarios that might allow the trucking industry to get in that, that segment sooner. If they pioneer that technology, do you think there'll be a, 
a big gap between when self-driving trucks are on the road versus when an average consumer can walk into a dealership and buy a self-driving car? Yeah, so from a technology perspective, I think it's it's a lot of it is a common technology um, that will not be a whole lot different um, based on our experiences coming up to SA level three, the ADAS feature development. There's few fundamental shifts in terms of technologies, uh, how we adapt to the 5G and how do we adapt to, to the uh, uh, recording the data in the cloud and using that information. There could be some of those differences but my view is some of those technical challenges will get sorted out and it always gravitates towards what makes the business sense. Uh, but you'll be able to adapt. Uh, there's a lot of common in terms of the suppliers we work with. Uh, that's why we have automotive and transportation as one uh, group uh, from a uh, from an industry standpoint. But there's a lot of commonality on both these technologies and how we develop these vehicles. Well, since you brought it up, let's talk about 5G. What role is that technology playing in the development of autonomous vehicles? So in, in order, I touched on the ecosystem for autonomous vehicles. For the vehicle's ability to talk to the other vehicles on the road, uh, vehicle's ability to talk to the infrastructure, for example, the traffic lighting, uh, vehicles um, ability to recognize the rest of the city infrastructures and in fact more than just autonomous as an ecosystem trying to work together with the city uh, the, that there's a communication protocol uh, and there's different elements how we go about it so if we adapt a um, cell phone based uh, or the cell phone communication protocols that's where the 5g comes into big play. So over the years, there's been a lot of discussions on DSRC, um, directed short range uh, adoption, or whether it's gonna be based off of the uh, protocols coming from the communications industry, that's where 5G comes into play. So specific examples, um, for example, if there's pedestrians on the road and your vehicle needs to recognize uh, one of the recognitions is camera-based. This is physically looking at the, uh, the the pedestrian. Others could also be everyone is equipped with some kind of uh, communication technologies, and there's a Wi-Fi system in, in the vehicle itself, and it recognizes the signals coming from the uh, phone, in this case, in today's example, in, in a passenger's or a pedestrian's hand, and you can adapt to that. So, so 5G plays a lot of role in terms of communications, the latency, uh, of the uh, in improving on that and the amount of data it'll be able to communicate in a short amount of time. So all those are the factors uh, which play from a 5G perspective. So that's uh, a full Internet of Things type ecosystem. Is there a big infrastructure problem then in the cities where self-driving vehicles may someday drive in? Yeah, so the infrastructure piece comes with it. And that's where at Siemens we really get excited about as uh, our Siemens has got the um, infrastructure piece uh, in a lot of places, whether it's the proving grounds or the cities, all of the traffic and the lighting systems infrastructure that comes from Siemens as an example uh, from our parent company. And that's going to be very important. How do you communicate with that system? And in order to increase safety, what's called V2X or vehicle to vehicle connectivity, that is important as well. And if it's a cell phone base, that's uh, 5G is gonna play a big role in that. So the ultimately you have your vehicle are 
not just a vehicle by itself, it's in a self-aware surroundings. It, it needs to be aware of its surroundings all the time as well. All right, let's get to this important topic of safety then. How do autonomous vehicle developers ensure that their systems are safe? And you know that's challenge one. Then how do you convince the public that they actually are safe? Safety is paramount, um, no matter what level of vehicle, what you drive, um, because you absolutely want to make sure. So challenge becomes all the scenarios the autonomous vehicle might experience during the drive. There's sort of say millions of combinations, right? You can think of a lot of scenarios, but your vehicle still might experience something which engineers or developers have not thought of and they haven't programmed that in their software for the autonomous driving piece of it. Um, so that that's a one big factor. What we call is uh, being ability to handle the edge cases, something it hasn't interpreted or seen before, uh, that, that's a big piece of it. Now, if in a realistic sense, if you say I want a physical verification of everything, you'll have to collect, there's been several studies highlighting you'll have to collect millions of miles and you'll be driving for X number of years, your product development cycle time will reach a point that it won't be practical. So that's where the uh, simulation comes into place, that you can play all those verification scenarios from very concept design to development, as well as during verification uh, through the simulating the environments. And when it comes to simulation, again, it's gonna be simulations at all, all levels, at a chip level, at a vehicle level, at a city level, with the infrastructure. Uh, and that's how you can accomplish all this goal of going through what we call continuous verification and validation during development and you can address a lot more scenarios. You can collect a lot more miles in a hardware in the loop or in a simulation environment than in a physical driving on the road. But how do you ensure that you're accounting for all those many edge cases in your simulations? So the that, that is again, you first start with collecting the data for those edge cases and you feed that and train your algorithms to get those scenarios. Now, this is where the 5G and some of the updating on the cloud and feeding it back there comes into place. Some of that you can do it in a live scenario or they take data collection in a ghost scenario and you're feeding that back. And that is the best way to capture all the information and feeding it back and retraining your algorithms you're using. So it's a continuous learning. Um, so in the opening, you made a comment that um, Tesla came out and said something like it'll be there out sooner. So these are the kind of technologies they're looking into and have a lot more confidence that I could bring artificial intelligence and machine learning as part of that data collection and the edge scenarios, even though vehicles have not experienced everything, uh, that if they do, they'll be lively, fed back and the ability to make decisions would be there and that'll be the right decisions. Uh, there's another factor here in terms of safety and that's not just making sure that the car is driving itself properly, but it's also making sure that somebody else isn't gonna remotely take over that car or hack into it. How do you account for those types of concerns? Yeah, no, that, that's again, that's a very good question. Uh, that's where the overall cybersecurity comes into place. So now it's not only the cybersecurity related to your IT infrastructure 
that no one can tap into that, your vehicle becomes a hub. It's it's your carrying computer. Uh, autonomous vehicle, you pretty much could say it's your computer on the wheels. Um, so you have to have the same protocols from the very beginning of development of the software, whether that's ISO 26262 compliance or other standards, and then making sure all the cybersecurity related measures are happening at a software in the vehicle, similar to what, how you're trying to protect um, your IT infrastructure in any company. So that, that becomes a very, very important point as well, that absolutely making sure there's no leakage or, or hacking into the into the computers on your uh, on your vehicle um, is not that easy either. So you're talking about regulations, uh, both for security and even for driving with the uh, NHTSA. Um, are these regulations under active development? Are regulators waiting for the technology to get there or is it happening all at the same time? So in my experience, this is um, uh, a catch-22 or um, chicken and egg situation. Um, regulators, in my experience, again, looking at standards organizations and some lead companies um, to come up with some ideas, have a proposals and the review with them and them working together, coming towards the final situations. Uh, it is not that they already know what these standards need to be uh, and what these testing protocols need to be, and they hand it off to the OEMs or, or the supply base and say, go adapt to that. So it's an iterative process, and it is, I would say, still going through that development phase, uh, just like uh, we've done any other safety or cybersecurity standards of the past. Now, you talk about three different parts of an autonomous vehicle system. You break it down into perception. Those are the sensors that are gathering the data, decision-making, the chips and processors that are sorting through that data, and then action, the actuators that are affecting that change in the world. I was hoping you could elaborate on how autonomous vehicle developers are choosing between some of the trade-offs in those three areas. For example, in terms of sensors, how do you choose between cameras, radars, lidars, infrared, and in terms of the decision-making, are you doing all that locally? Are you sending it to an edge server, to the cloud? How do you make those types of decisions? So as you can imagine, the technologies in each one of those areas you mentioned is continuing to mature and grow. And um, based on where the performance is coming out to be, that's how you make the decisions of what to adapt and what not to adapt. So cameras are capturing an image, but it's got its own limitations. That's how radars and lidars come into play. Um, I think one of the fundamental thing is a technology aspect, but also the cost aspect of it. That how many of the cameras you would need if, if you chose just a camera system, um, then how expensive does it become? Uh, same thing as on LiDAR and radar technologies. Uh, and that's what I mean by things are continuing to mature and grow. As an example, today's limitations, you could say, uh, I shouldn't say limitations, but it's not as easy uh, when you're driving under a normal road and weather conditions versus driving at night or driving in the rain or fog. However, there's laser technologies uh, as well as infrared technologies coming, but then they become very expensive as an introduction. Um, so one of the big factors is whenever new technology is there, you have to have economies of scale, and that's where the cost of the technology starts to come down, and that's what goes towards the mass adaption. 
Um, same thing as you as you said, it's a human body analogy. That's all about what our eyes do when we are driving vehicles ourselves is the perception piece of it. Then processing of that information and the algorithms to make decisions, what to do, how to avoid a specific scenario, uh, how to steer and what, how to brake, how much, how hard to brake. Uh, all those things come into play and that's the decision-making algorithms. And there again, uh, that's where the AI also comes into play. We've referred a few times, uh, there's more and more maturity coming and whether you make decisions at a chip level or you send everything back to a central unit and make the decisions there and then the latency issues come into play. So that's the that aspect of it. So it's the balancing of the trade-off of performance and cost and technology maturization. You pick a path on what to do. And of course, as a business, uh, we, we see it very clearly different companies pick different strategy. And that's why you see so many different points of views uh, across different companies, right? Um, so if you say what Hyundai and Aptiv have merged and the approach they are taking might be different uh, from a company X uh, versus uh, what's already being done at, at uh, today's OEMs. So those are the decisions drive, what is your strategy? and what approach and what path you want to take, and, and then that's how you go forward. Let's go back to the simulation again. Is it the automakers themselves who are driving the use of simulation, pardon the pun? Um, yes, of course. Simulation is, uh, so to say, in a way, it's not new. Um, I've spent almost 30 years um, doing that, uh, and most of the auto OEMs have extensive simulation infrastructure, uh, but at the same time, as you know, the technology keeps maturing and the innovation uh, keeps challenging. And now the simulation needs to happen at all levels. Um, when we started uh, three decades ago, it was pretty much simulation as you're doing A to B analysis, you're doing some uh, prediction of something, but you always relied on physical testing. There's a huge emphasis on rely on analytical or the simulation more and more so that the physical testing is either eliminated in certain scenarios or it is there for final validation only, just as a confirmation test, so to say, in the physical environment. So the simulation technologies with all the advances in computing power, in internet speed, uh, and the infrastructure of multiprocessing, et cetera, has allowed simulation, both from a software perspective as well as the hardware, to grow and continue to mature and take us to the next level. All these things we are talking about, whether it's electric vehicle or the autonomous vehicle, those things will not be possible if the simulation technologies were not maturing along with that and were the key contributors. So I think simulation plays a big role, will continue to play a big role, and it might be the biggest differentiators where we go over the next um, 10 to 20 years. Now, when you talk about simulation at that city level, the high level, how can you be sure that your simulations are corresponding closely enough to reality to actually be useful for these testing purposes? Yeah, th this, this subject is very close to my heart. Uh, this is one thing um, is called correlation. And the correlation is with the physical 
test environment or, or, or whether it could be a test or it could be an entire environment. So when you predict, you're making certain assumptions in the modeling and the physics you're adapting and the, for example, material properties you're putting, et cetera, and you get certain amount of result. First few iterations, you want to validate that what happens in the real world. We are, as you know, really big on this concept and we call it a digital twin. So a digital twin is a virtual representation of a physical environment. And that could be at a product level from a design perspective. It could be a manufacturing, digital twin of manufacturing that you have your entire plant, uh, which is the physical environment, but you have that same thing on the computer first. And that makes a digital twin. Same way digital twin is extending to what we call service environment, that once the vehicle is out on the road for predictive maintenance uh, or for anything of that nature, there's a closed loop process of adapting to technologies like IoT and analytics, receiving that data, processing that data, and then making decisions based off of that data so that your next vehicle, next design, next product is better than the one before and it has taken into account all the real world learnings based on these technologies. So that subject becomes very important and, and we are really uh, proud of offering that capability to have a, what we call comprehensive digital twin, which can work out this physical to analytical, both at a design, manufacturing and at a service level. All right, Nand, I have one more question for you, and now we're going to veer off a little bit into the realm of the philosophical, but I want to bring up this question of the trolley problem, which has come up in the autonomous vehicle space, and just for the sake of our viewers, uh, the trolley problem goes like this. You have an autonomous vehicle, say it's driving on a bridge, a pedestrian darts out in front of the car, and in this scenario, let's pretend it's only got two options. It can hit the pedestrian, kill the pedestrian, or it can swerve to the side off the bridge and kill the passengers. Now, I don't know if this is a realistic edge case, but it's a thought-provoking one. Who's making the decisions about this kind of problem at the, at the programming level? How do you tell the car what to do in this scenario? Is that the automakers, the regulators? What are your thoughts on this problem? Yeah, this, this is where, you know, when, we, when you said how, why do you think autonomous vehicles are far? Uh, and I said, it's not just the technology, because technology is there that you tell the decision-making car to stop immediately, and car would. Now that might jerk the passenger in the car and the and the driver in the car to a levels beyond a simple uh, normal driving, uh, but that's a decision making. So I think from a technology standpoint, was there the thing I was touching on? There are all the other social impacts and policy impacts, and that's where those come into play. Who is accountable for at the end of the day? Is it the ROEM? is the technology provider. Um, it's just like the accidents do happen today. And we have a mechanism in place. How do you assess who's at fault? So some of those things, to best of my knowledge, are not worked out and will take a while for us to work it out, both from a legal perspective, as well as a policy perspective, which will lead into the decision-making on what is the right certification? What is the right protocol, et cetera? So these are the tough questions, and, and I wish the answers were out there. Then I could make that statement as well, how soon we would have the technology out there. But simple truth is, 
with a straight face, I can tell you I've come across and read all those answers, and that's I can predict. That, that doesn't exist. Might not be the answer you wanted to hear, uh, but that, that's the reality, <laughs> to the best of my knowledge. I appreciate it, Nat. I didn't expect you to have a definitive answer to that question. But Nat, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. Really appreciate having you on. Thank you, Michael. Really enjoyed talking to you and really appreciate your time. Thanks, Nan. And thanks to you for tuning in. We'll see you next time on Designing the Future.